Today's episode is episode 224, and today's episode is called Repetition Compulsion. So today's episode is inspired by Repetition Compulsion. This was a term coined by Freud, Sigmund Freud, and it describes the human tendency to repeat patterns. The patterns exist outside of our conscious awareness and can leave us feeling confused by our own behavior, like we are at war with ourselves. So yeah, this, this is what today's episode is about. It's, I suppose, exploring that in my own life. Again, like any other episode, take from what you will. I'm not a psychologist. Just explaining my own experiences and my own interest in psychology, human behavior. So white repetition compulsion is important to take a look at. Is Without looking at this, it feels like there's no hope. Because the repetition compulsion is is in the unconscious, it's subconscious to us. So on a conscious level, it makes no sense. So it's you're doing things that don't seem in your own best interest. They seem quite destructive, but you've no idea why you're doing it because it's in the subconscious. But because it's in the subconscious, because you don't understand why you're doing it today, that doesn't mean that you'll never understand it or be able to break out of it. So that's what today's episode is about. With Freud, he had developed on two ideas, the life instinct, eros, is the Greek for that, and the death instinct, uh, thanatos. So they were two instincts he connected with repetition compulsion. So the life instinct is a bit more positive. It's the energy created by the life drive known as the libido. So as you see here, like the libido, it's not just purely sexual thing. It's more of a it's a positive drive. It's a drive to create. So here you have procreation, social cooperation, survival. These are all positive things for any human being who wants to live in the civilized world. But then on the other end, you've got the dead instinct. You've got aggression, risky behavior, and reliving trauma and so with the dead instinct people can channel this instinct outward when being aggressive towards other people or they can channel it inwards which results in self-harm or suicidal thoughts so just with the life instinct actually the behaviors commonly associated with life instincts include love cooperation and other pro-social actions these behaviors support both individual well-being and the harmonious existence of a cooperative and healthy society so my own experience, I've seen both of these play out in my life, life instinct and death instinct. Death instinct, like the life instinct makes sense. It's like you're doing, you're, you're behaving in a way that optimizes your chances that you'll feel like you're a good person and you're getting on society, you're doing the best you can. And I've also seen the death instinct though in terms of things that I've done, things that I do, habits, that don't seem to be in my own best interest. And the problem is, too, that sometimes you're living in a society that primes you towards acting out things that are more in this category of death instinct in terms of behaviors that obviously aren't in your best interest. Drink, for example, here, a drink culture, an unhealthy drink culture where people drink to get drunk on the surface, obviously, is not a good thing for anyone. You're actively promoting something harmful mentally, 
physically to people. But because it's accepted, society accepts that that's an acceptable way to be, that's an acceptable way to blow off steam, it's somewhat okay, but it still ties into this dead instinct on an individual level. So this is where I see it play out in my own life. If I look back on, especially my university years, I had a very negative relationship with drink. And that wasn't purely just down to me. The environment and the expectations of college life feeds into this having an unhealthy relationship with drink. Where connected with me so so there's an element of environment and an element individual it's not completely down to the environment thankfully because if it was you'd never be able to change on an individual level so later on in life i don't know whether i i never fully looked at my relationship with drink it kind of has organically gotten better as the years have gone by like the odd time now i might get drunk but I never go out now with the intention of getting drunk. Whereas during university, that was the normal to me. I went out with the intention of getting drunk. And it's only looking back now that it's the, it's the deeper stuff that was driving that. So primarily a feeling of being uncomfortable in my skin in social settings and then being in settings where other people were drunk that was facilitating my negative relationship with drink. So even if I tried on a surface level to change that, nothing would really change until I came to grips with the fact that I was uncomfortable with myself and I was putting myself in situations where it was increasing the chances that I would have a negative relationship with drink. Uh, and then tying that with just the cultural narratives around being in college and drinking to get drunk as a cocktail for having a negative relationship with drink. So on a substance level, I didn't really even like the taste of drink. I never liked the hangovers the next day. So it wasn't related to that. So if I tried to cut down, if I approached it purely from a symptom level and tried to cut down a drink that I would go, oh, if I go out now, I'm just going to have three points. If I went out with people who weren't having three or four points, it's not going to work for me because I'm still uncomfortable with my skin and I'm still putting myself in situations where other people are getting drunk. So it's not going to change anything. It's not going to move the needle at all. So these things are subconscious. At that time, I didn't. I was possibly so in denial of, of how things were. It's probably a combination of being in denial and not knowing any different. So it wasn't like I had a another experience of college life where I could say, like, oh, you don't actually have to drink to get drunk to have a good time. And plenty of other people, examples of people who aren't really drinking and still seem to have a great time. I didn't have, it's not like I'm living in a, in the, what's the name for it? It's not like I have the option of parallel universes where I can play out different simulations and pick the best one. You've just got one. And that ties into the familiarity with repetition compulsion, which I think is my first point, uh, which is ask yourself what's normal to you. So that was my experience at college. Like that, that's what I thought normal life in college is, and it probably is for many, many people, especially in Ireland, where, where there. I think the drinking culture is it's still there, but it's probably not as bad as it was when I was going through college. So, it possibly was the experience for quite a number of people. I think you have to be a very strong character not to have been immersed in that culture at that time. So, what's normal to you? This is an important question to ask yourself and to reflect on and to take seriously. 
when it comes to the repetition compulsion because there's a good deal of this that's just familiar. You're recreating what's familiar to you. So let's tie it back again to the college experience. So what helped me was that it was four years of doing that and then I left college and I went to France and you're in a different environment. So when I was in France, I didn't drink much at all. Yeah, I didn't drink much at all, really. And that was possibly the first time in four or five years where I had an extended period where I didn't really drink. So it was a different environment. So automatically I'm kind of taking myself out of it. But um, that's what I went through a number of different things after that. So I never really consciously worked on the drinking thing. But it's kind of a symptom of the deeper work I had done after college. But if you didn't do any type of deeper reflection or analysis in your life, there's a good chance that you'll be your environment will change. So you finish the college years, you're moving on into the workforce. There's a good chance you'll just recreate the experience you had in college. So you'll naturally find people who also have an unhealthy relationship with drink, and you'll just recreate the same pattern again. That's the repetition compulsion, and that's the familiarity part, is that you've bought into that this is normal life, this is this is real life, this is how people socialize, this is the only reality. If I don't engage in it, then I'm going to be left alone. See, this is, this is the thing I see in my life, it might not necessarily have been around drink, but it's been around other things, where it's you see one reality, you don't know any other reality, so it's you have to choose between continue to engage in that reality or being ostracized from it, feeling disconnected from it, feeling alone. I don't know if there is a way out of that. I think you'll possibly have to choose one or the other. I feel like, I feel like I've had to choose isolation in order to move forward. Because I think the isolation part, so you disconnect from an environment you're familiar with that that is actually doing you damage mentally, physically and emotionally. And there's a period where you're kind of isolated from things. But that's the, the you're developing your own kind of inner strength and character again. Because it, the, from what I can see, the truth of the matter is that there's many types of environment, many types of people. And because you've been immersed in an environment that you, you've kind of woken up that this isn't healthy for me anymore, you haven't the experience of another environment, so it's going to take time for you to actually understand some of your values, some of, like, it's going to take time to develop your character, and then naturally over time again, you'll gradually find people who can relate to that character, and you'll start to form more genuine, 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 genuine and authentic relationships. But that takes time, and it takes a bit of strength of character to... You're going against the grain of what you know so that's what's normal to you so it's important to get clear on what's normal to you because that's how you'll see both the negatives and the positives to where you're currently at so i would have never actually like written out asked that question and written it out it's only in hindsight that i realized that that's a good question to get clear on so i might actually save you time i'm only realizing that in recent months that like that that would have been a useful question for me to ask myself basically because i see like that 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 does influence massively your perception of what's possible for your life
So then the next point, homeostasis. So I was listening recently to a Ready to Be Real podcast episode with Richard Hogan. Sheila Shogun is the host. I recommend giving this episode a listen. Uh, he talks about family dynamics and when you when you like when you're working on yourself, you you will naturally start to break out from the role you usually occupied. And that can be that can be challenging. That can be challenging to uh, I suppose a lot of things to kind of process around that. And but the homeostasis part is that eventually if you if you stick at it a homeostasis, a new homeostasis will be reached again. So that homeostasis it's not completely within your hands. It's like the system itself will need to readjust to how you are now. And maybe sometimes the system will need to reject you and somebody else will take on the role that you used to occupy. But the only thing that's certain is that the system will change. So that, that's homeostasis there. So I suppose there's that's positive to keep in mind because you're not it's not you alone that's doing the work. You don't need to force anything. So that's a reflection of, so when I started off like looking at this stuff, I would have thought, what is it, that Gandhi thing of to change the world, you need to change yourself. When, when you start off, you kind of think you need to change your surroundings, you need to change the people in it to, uh, for, for change to come about. But the reality of the matter is that the only thing you can change is yourself. But what does happen as a consequence of that is that the systems you're connected to, in terms of human systems, they will need to adjust, and they adjust automatically. It's not something you actually can control. All you can control is your part in the system, in terms of you can work on yourself, work through your shit, naturally you'll change as a person. Then the system has to change because you're no longer the same person that was in that system. So that's an interesting thing to to be aware of. I suppose in a positive sense, it means that you don't have to do as much heavy lifting as you thought it was, as you thought you would. But then it's also challenging because it's it, it will feel like there's you as the person, individual changing, and there's a big system out to stop you from changing. That's what it can feel like sometimes. That's like that matrix trope of like, uh, the matrix is, out, matrix is out to get you. In reality, it's, it's a bit more nuanced than that. It's like there, there is a matrix in terms of there's human systems there, but they're not like actively out to get you, even though it might feel like that. What's actually happening from what I can see is that the system will readjust Sometimes you will get pushback from the system, trying to put you back in your box, back in your place. And that can feel like the matrix being out to get you. But it's not you individually, it's just that's how the system operates. It does that to anyone that will want to change in some way. That's just how things are. So at least when you have that perspective, you tend to like see that it's, it's neutral in terms of if anybody tries to change, there's a readjustment to the whole entire system. And uh, that can bring up a lot of different things. So the next point here, change your relationship with pain. This can be helpful with the previous point, actually. So a big thing for me has been 
working on my relationship with pain and anger. It's learning to see it as information. Learning to perceive anger as just like any other emotion, like happiness, sadness. In, it's letting it in. Letting it in. Like it's there for a reason. I think when I... when I think some of the misperceptions I had was that feeling anger made you a bad person. I think it's a very naive understanding of the emotion. From what I can see, I wouldn't think, like, I'm not a proponent of feeling anger and doing whatever you want with it, lashing out at people. I'm more a proponent of letting in the anger to the extent that you no longer feel like you're resisting it. So I think like with, with feelings like anger or any feeling that you're repressing because you've some sort of, for me it was like a moral thing. It was like good people don't get angry, bad people get angry. So that's a very childish morality I had around the feeling of anger that I've been working on over the years. But it's not, it's not using anger then just to lash out. It's, it's, it's having a more nuanced understanding of the anger. Like the anger, it's looking at the positives to anger. Anger, I feel, is needed, or the potential to have anger in you, is needed to have boundaries with people who just won't respect you. They won't respect you unless there's that element of not being someone who can be messed with. Because there's a naivety. So I... Gradually, I've been, as I've been letting in more of these feelings, I've seen how naive and how susceptible I've been in the past to people who are maybe a bit more... They have a bit less empathy. People who are maybe a bit more sociopathic or they just look at the world emotionless. I was reading a book about that, actually, The Confessions of a Sociopath. I'd recommend giving that a read, but giving it a read with an open mind as much as possible. I could see some overlaps between how the sociopath thinks and how I think. Potentially I'm a sociopath. Uh, but I don't think so really to be honest. But it, the main difference I saw though was in terms of human relationships. The sociopath from what I can see sees other people as people to be manipulated. Tools. Pieces on a ch chessboard. Pawns. Whereas I'm more from the belief that human relationships, like having authentic relationships in your life, especially with yourself and then with other people from that, that's what makes a rich experience of life. And for me, without that, life will feel hollow. So that's kind of the, the main difference I saw. But that was an interesting read because... There's an anonymous, an anonymous person who wrote the book because there's such a stigma around being a sociopath. And for, I can see why, why there is, because it can cause so much destruction. But then also empaths, I'd be more of an empath. Empaths can cause destruction too if, you, if you're too one-sided. That's why I try and let in more the... The feelings are in the shadow side to me, like anger and things like that. Because if you're just one-sided, a one-sided empath, because... We all have a mix of all these emotions. If you're just a one-sided empath, you'll tend to repress that and then you'll tend to project those repressed feelings onto other people. So you'll demonize people. So that can be just as destructive as somebody who has got no empathy for other people. 
So it's quite nuanced. I recommend giving a read, but I'd also if you're in a good place as well, because it's uh, it's kind of opening yourself up to seeing the other side of the coin, that there are people who will just see people as pawns in a chessboard. And uh, in their mind, that's the right way to go about life. And uh, so it can be challenging to read that. But when you take in more of that stuff, it takes away some childlike naivety. It makes you a stronger person. You're less naive, less vulnerable. The vulnerable thing, I used to think that. So there's a period in my life where I felt like vulnerability, it was a weakness. But that was primarily down to the environments I was in, where it was a weakness. People would poke at you. If you show vulnerability, if you show sincerity, they can poke at you. You're, you're vulnerable. If you show sincerity, if you show who you are, you're vulnerable to somebody inflicting emotional pain on you in terms of rejecting you or making fun of you. That's just the reality of things. So I'd grown to think that vulnerability was a weakness. Then as I've been doing the personal development work, I realized that if I become more vulnerable, I will have a better sense of who I am. I'll also see other people as they are. So I'm less blinded, actually. So that's where the strength comes in. But then I, I thought that other people once they experience vulnerability, they will recognize that they were wrong and it was a strength. But over the years now I've come to terms with, uh, now I think some people just see vulnerability as a weakness to exploit and they're not changing their mind on that. So books like that, about the confessions of a sociopath, have helped me to realize that not everybody is like me. And as well, to be for me to be cautious about my own vulnerability, so on this podcast, I, the whole point of this podcast is to be some way vulnerable, to some way show my real feelings and thoughts. But I suppose it kind of helps that like I have a lot of feelings and thoughts and like introducing elements of like where I can feel more of my anger and uh, when I can feel more of these darker feelings. It's, it knocks away a certain amount of naivety. I don't think I'm that predictable that's possibly why I share so much stuff on here. But at the same time, I'm always trying to find a balance between explicit and implicit. I think some things, some things will gradually just radiate from you. You don't need to explicitly say them. But in other times, you do need to explicitly say things because that's something I would have appreciated more growing up, I suppose, in different environments I was in. Oftentimes, things are just implicit. They're assumed you know things or they assume you should be a certain way. And that can be very confusing, complex for people. So I don't think you can you can move from one environment to another environment without some bit of explicit detail. That's probably part of why I'm doing this podcast, to explicitly outline some of the things I'm learning and some of the thoughts that I have, some of the philosophies I have. That can some way create a bridge for you if you feel like this is something that's moving in a positive direction for you. So it's a continuous balancing act. Like in my day-to-day life, I'll tend to be vulnerable with people who are also vulnerable. And I'll tend to see that in the long term anyway, If because if I'm having an authentic relationship with someone, there'll be a feeling of progression that I'm actually knowing this person better. So the vulnerability needs to be on both sides. If it's a one-sided vulnerability, that's something to be just aware of. If it's a one-sided vulnerability, be aware that the other person might be just collecting information on you to use against you at some stage in the future. But if you get a sense that they're sharing stuff with you as well, 
and there's a trust there that both of you won't go out and breach that or try and hurt the other person then that for me is more of an authentic thing and thankfully i've had I've, i have not had i have some of these in my life but i've also had the experience where it felt like i don't know what this is it feels more like information gathering thing more than a, like a friendship that's developing here so that's something to be aware of vulnerability is both a strength it's a very powerful strength but it's also a weakness in the wrong hands so just be aware of that um something that i only learned in recent years and it's an important lesson something i probably need to continuously learn and in the last part here this little final point though not all repetitions are bad so this is just in terms of routines uh, i wouldn't want to live in a world where everything's unfamiliar there's nothing that i can rely on or depend on i suppose the, the nuanced thing here again is with human relationships is trying to find that balance where you people in your life where it feels like there's a stability there there's dependability there but there's also space for the person to grow that you don't need them to be a certain way and uh actually one thing i was listening to this week the deli alley interview which was a, an eye-opening interview it, it was you know, it was a very vulnerable interview for him to give especially in a world of football where you're faced with crowds that can just chant abuse at you at any bit of weakness. So there was massive strength for him to have an interview where he was very vulnerable in that type of environment. So for me, that signaled quite a shift, to be honest, because it seemed quite um, honest from what I could see. But he reiterated something that I'd mentioned on another podcast a while back about Patuccini that I don't know what I was listening to but it came across as like a kind of a, a spiritual person in the sense that he spoke to the person rather than the footballer and that was something that Deli Ali reiterated on that interview that he had a sense that Patuccini would have spoke to him first and foremost as a person and then as a footballer so that's something to keep in mind actually in terms of uh, the environment you're in. So if you're in an environment right now where speaking to the person instead of the role they play isn't the perceived normal, it's going to be very hard for you to wrap your head around an environment where it is the normal. And oftentimes I see this play out when when people might say to me that like I, I that. I want deep and meaningful conversations. Like that has always kind of frustrated me. And it's not necessarily that the well, people who say it to me coming from a bad place or anything, but it's always frustrated me because it it almost felt like like a way to keep me from thinking that there's another environment that's what where I feel at home, comfortable in. And it's using the logic of the current environment to try and understand another environment. So from what I can see, like if you're living in a, an environment that's quite surface level and people just play their roles, play their parts. When they think of something different, they try and understand it through the lens of their current environment. So if they think of somewhere where there's actual meaningful conversations or deep conversations, but then think of that at an intellectual level and it becomes this like intellectual philosophical conversation 
Whereas in reality, from my own experience, I think the deep and meaningful conversations environment is just purely an environment where somebody's speaking to the person and not just purely to the role. It's a combination of the two. So like for a manager, football manager, Daryl Patticini, he also needs to be able to be a football manager. He needs to know what he's doing. He needs to be competent. So it's not just good enough to speak to the person and not have any competency. That won't work. You need to have the skill set and the knowledge that you're speaking to a person to get the best out of them. That's from what I can see. I don't have that much experience myself in terms of that, bits and pieces here and there. But um, that's something to keep in mind because that's something I've massively struggled with, this kind of deep and meaningful conversation thing. It's purely an environment. So my aim is to create an environment where people get a sense that I'm speaking to the person instead of the role they occupy, or that I can at least tell the difference between their role and the person, because sometimes the lines get blurred, and I don't know whether it's just a... Some people don't have the ability to tell the person from the role, because maybe they just don't have that capacity, or either they don't have the capacity, or they don't have... or they've just been so long living a role they can't tell the difference anymore. It's like an actor who's known who's just been acting their whole life, that doesn't know any different. That's, that's from what I can see. I think Deli Elliott, you mentioned that in the, in the interview, that it's hard to explain that. And it's something that be aware of to not over-explain. Just sense it out. That's what I've been kind of learning. Sense these things out a bit more than, than trying to understand them on an intellectual level. That's it anyway. That's the repet the repetition compulsion. Hope that's been some way of use and of value. Again, I'm speaking from my own experiences, not a trained psychologist. I'm just kind of speaking from my own passion for for these types of things and my own interests. So that's it. Thanks again for listening, and I will speak to you on next episode.